This is the first day of Advent season. And today we have the Advent wreath here. I'll be lighting the first candle. And this first candle symbolizes hope. The hope that was embodied when Jesus was born in the manger. Hope. It is one of the themes of the season. Now we all know about hope. We're familiar with it. In fact, we probably all realize that what we had hoped for in 2020 just did not come about, and so many things we didn't anticipate did. We're wondering today, does our hope actually affect the future? Apparently hoping for the best for 2020 <laughs> didn't work. So how does hope work? Let's just think about it. Can you remember something that you hoped for that came true? How did that feel when you were hoping for it? And then how did it feel when it came true? Can you remember something specifically you hoped for that did not come true? What did that hope feel like? Maybe a little more desperate? And what did it feel like when it did not come true? We're going to actually look into uh, hope. We're going to take it apart, unpack it, and see what it is and how it works. The definition of hope is the feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best, called a positive expectation. Now, hope utilizes our imagination and our emotions. Let's say you hope to win the lottery. And so in your hopes, you create some videos in your mind of you winning the lottery. Perhaps you see yourself scratching off a ticket. You see them presenting you with this big check. You see yourself riding in the car that you bought with your lottery wins or whatever. But anyway, it's in your imagination. And as you imagine that, you have a, uh, an emotional boost, probably. Or let's say that you uh, have that hope stimulating those feelings within you that are consistent with you achieving what it was. A beach vacation. You can probably, here we are, the beginning of winter, see yourself in your mind on a beach, sand and the warm sun, and it gives you somewhat of the feeling, a longing, but also a feeling of actually being there. We hope for what we don't have, right? I mean, that's easy to understand. If we already have something, or we can see we can get it pretty easily, we don't necessarily have to hope. For example, if you're home now uh, watching this, you may have a cup of coffee in your hand, or you know you can go to your kitchen and make one, so you don't really have hope entering the equation. Hope comes into play when what we want is beyond our actual control. It's a gap. It can be small or large, but that gap is where we hope and where we can't control the situation. Like if you want some Christmas gift from Santa, you write a letter to Santa, try to be extra good, but still the outcome is out of your control. Or let's say that you want a new job or a raise. Uh, you hope for it, you can try to perform your best, but uh, somebody else is gonna call those shots. Does our hope actually affect the future? It feels good, and it can motivate you to do your best to bring it about, but does it actually affect the future? Let's say that you want something to happen 
but you can't make it happen on your own. Who can? Oh, yeah, God. And so we put that hope into a prayer, and we pray, please, 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 God, let this happen or don't let this happen. We want, usually, circumstances to turn about for our good. Whether you're praying for yourself or perhaps praying for the health of someone else, we put those into a prayer, and it's a setup. Because we hope, we pray, if it doesn't happen, we feel let down. Our hopes are dashed, so to speak. And we can even develop a grudge against God if he doesn't come through with what we hope and pray for. In fact, I think I've seen more people walk away from their faith in God because of this than any other reason. Because what they hoped for and prayed for, God didn't come through on it. So far, this sermon probably doesn't sound very hopeful. It sounds like maybe you're saying, hey, you're, you're trying to tell us not to hope or pray to God for stuff. Well, not exactly. But let's recognize that a lot of our hopes are for good things to happen to us or bad things not to happen. And they often arise in a time of need. Plus, our culture just generates things to hope for. And so we find ourselves in a situation where uh, we can hope for a lot of things and we can be disappointed in a lot of ways. What if you're in negative circumstances? That often uh, provides a hope that those circumstances will change. And we want to automatically throw up a prayer for that to happen. Let's see from the Bible a person who is in negative circumstances and uh, see how they handle that negative circumstance. Let's see if they hope for or if they pray for those circumstances to go away or for God to take them away. If so, we have a precedent for what to hope for. But if not, maybe we have an example of what else to do in a difficult situation. Now, the person we're going to look at is Paul. They call him Apostle Paul because he traveled all over telling people about Jesus and starting churches. His negative circumstance was chains. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, chained up, taken to Rome, kept in chains, probably until his execution. And so we can look to Paul's example because other than Jesus, he's one of the persons who exhibited and possessed that uh, insight, power, and wisdom from the Holy Spirit. We're going to look in the letter of Philippians from the Bible. It's a letter he wrote from jail in Rome to his friends in Philippi, where, of all things, when he was in Philippi, they saw him arrested and chained and beaten and put in jail. We're going to see what he says to them. In Philippians uh, 3.17, he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us for a model, follow others who live like us. So he's giving us permission to look at him for as an example of what a Christian would do in difficult circumstances. So what does he say about chains in his letter? All we've got to do is go back to the first chapter, see whether or not he was complaining about it, moaning about it, begging them to pray that God would get him out of the chains. We go to Philippians 1, verse 3. He says, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now, the letter to the Philippians is often called the letter of joy. But remember, Paul is chained while he's writing this letter. 
I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. I'm confident that God who began a good work in you will carry it through a completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart, whether I'm in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And so the chains of Paul are no impediment for his joy, for his love for them. It sounds like he's in a pretty good mood. He's upbeat. He's writing, he doesn't realize, he's writing part of the Bible while he's in chains. Uh, when he was in jail, his attitude um, was an example that affected other people. I remember several years ago, I uh, did a message uh, one Sunday morning, uh, as if I were Paul, uh, dictating the letter to the Philippians. And so I got a friend who was a deputy in Garfield County, and he came uh, that Sunday morning. I put on a, a prisoner suit, and he put the chains on my hands and my feet and walked out here in chains. And I can tell you, chains are no fun. I only had them on about a half an hour, but to live in those chains day and night for years, that would not be a pleasant experience. He is an example for them. They saw him in chains. He's got cred with these people and he loves them. Here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 12 of Philippians. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Chains advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else, I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul actually says his chains have been a stimulus for people to be more bold in sharing Christ with others. It's amazing. He's not only complaining, he's not complaining about his chains. He's not praying or groaning they be removed. And he's not mad at God for not removing those and not rescuing him. He actually sees the chains as an advantage. In jail, in chains, he's talking with everyone there about Jesus. And people outside are encouraged to share Jesus more. Let's check a few other letters that he wrote from prison to uh, people, for example, in Ephesus. 619, he says, Pray for me that whatever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He calls himself an ambassador in chains. Usually an ambassador has a portfolio. Paul's got his chains. Let's look at Colossians 4.3. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Chains are no impediment to him being able to share Christ. In 2 Timothy 1.16, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He came looking for me in Rome, found me in chains. He was not embarrassed. Uh, to his friend Philemon, he wrote, uh, I want you to accept Onesimus coming back to you. He was a slave that had run away from Philemon. But he said, while he was in chains in Rome, Paul actually led to Christ and mentored this person so that this person became a strong Christian as well. And so what did Paul do instead of copying a bad attitude while he was in chains? He made the most of it. 
and we're going to see the quality and the nature and the texture of what he was like and how he, uh, instead of complaining and wanting to be out of the chains, he actually bore up and served as an example of grace under pressure. By the way, uh, in, in preparing the message, I saw that there are some chains that are enshrined in the Basilica of St. Paul in Rome. In 324, Constantine, the emperor, who had become a Christian, uh, built this basilica and put the chains that apparently had bound Paul's wrist or feet in that basilica. What happened, we don't know for sure, is that Paul's friends, after Paul was beheaded, they lovingly took his body and took the chains off and kept them until the 324 when Constantine found out about them and put them in a shrine. Paul's example of a Christian in difficult circumstances worked out so that many people were saved, not just in prison, not just the guards, but also to, well, Caesar's household. At the end of Philippians chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus, the brothers and sisters with me, other Christians there, that have become Christians because of his chains, send greetings. Listen to this. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Is that amazing? If you were thrown in jail in Russia, let's say, by Vladimir Putin, and while you were in jail awaiting whatever sentencing would come, you were sharing Christ so much that in his household, people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember last week, in Daniel's sermon on gratitude, he was describing how an attitude that can infuse us in negative circumstances is contentment. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but in difficult circumstances, Paul describes how contentment is a strength. In Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living with plenty or in want. And here's this famous verse you've probably memorized, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's referring here to the power necessary for contentment in difficult situations so that there's not this uh, hoping that puts him in jeopardy of having a difficult relationship with God. Here's the point. Paul had every reason to be discontent, disgruntled, resentment because of his circumstances. I wouldn't say that he did not have a hope that he would be released and be able to travel again, but that hope did not harden into a demanding prayer that affected his attitude as he stayed there in that jail. <laughs> what he did in adverse circumstances was he led people to Christ, and he wrote most of the New Testament while in chains. I know, it's amazing. It's like, Paul, don't get your hopes up. Be content. Let God work and do what you should while you're in the situation. You see, it's more of who we hope in rather than just what we hope for. Hope in instead of hoping that something happens. Hope in well, in Psalms 42, 11, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, 
for I will praise him, my Savior, my God. Uh, David is talking to himself, to his soul, and saying, Soul, why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. In uh, Mark eleven twenty two, Jesus said, Have faith in God. And faith is the evidence, substance that hope is built on. There may be a time when you're trusting God, and here's the time to hope. When he puts a word in your heart about something that's going to happen. And so you attach your hope and your faith to that, regardless of the circumstances or the situation. Uh, example is Abram in the Old Testament. God promised that he would be the father of a great nation through having a child. The problem was is that Abraham was advanced in age at the time, had no children, and his wife was barren. But Romans 4.18, this is what's described. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed, and so did become the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him by God. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. But he didn't waver in unbelief regarding the promises of God. He was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. If God gives you a word, hang on to that with faith and with hope. While I was working on this, I had kind of a vision of how Paul's contentment uh, would work. Say a child, a small child in a loving family. A small child doesn't think or worry about where the next meal's coming from or where they're going to sleep, shelter, or are the things that are necessary. They just, they don't know the word contentment, but they're content in their home because they trust in their parents, in their parents' character, proven example. Jesus said, even in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, I tell you, anyone, will, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Childlike faith. And this childlike faith in a loving family, a child trusting parents for uh, needs and for something perhaps beyond what they don't have, because kids can ask for all kinds of things. Now, the parents may say yes and provide it, or they may say no, and they help shepherd the child through not getting what they want to help them develop and maintain a good attitude. You're a Christian. As a child of God, you may uh, understand you live in His care, and you put your hope in Christ, and when you ask about different things or have hopes for things or requests, some of those things may actually happen in your life. But there are other times when they don't. And when they don't, God, your Father, is there to shepherd you through a disappointment, perhaps, so that you can continue to have an attitude of trust and contentment, even when you don't get what you ask for. It's like that famous theologian Garth Brooks saying, he said, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs, just because he may not answer doesn't mean he don't care, because some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. We can still hope in God, have joy and peace, even when our prayers aren't answered. We live with pervasive hope. So let's get to the hope we can have, the hope in God. You have it as an inheritance. It was inaugurated when you first believe in Jesus Christ. 
you realize that he died on the cross suffering for your sins and rose again. Resurrection from the dead gives us hope in his word. Hope. It is hope anchored in the past, prominent in the present, and still available in the future. In Colossians 1.3, we read where Paul talks about this hope. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. This faith and love spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Your hope is stored up for you in heaven. And it says here that from that hope, faith and love actually are developed by the hope stored up for you in heaven. Above any circumstances, untouchable, your hope is secure in heaven. In any circumstances, in Hebrews 6.18, it says God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Hope encourages. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. So there's a hope stored up for you in heaven. There is a hope that is an anchor for your soul. It's not fragile hope. In Romans 5, 2, this hope is described, we, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we start there. We start with boasting in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings, Paul, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character produces even more of a tangible hope. And this hope, he says, doesn't disappoint us because already God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. It's like hope is just pervasive. It's there, it's heaven, it's secure, it's in your soul, it's in your heart. And God's love anchors that hope in your heart. Uh, another quality of hope will be fulfilled in the future. As Paul writes in Titus 2, 13, we wait for the blessed hope. I mean, here is a, an adjective, a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we also hope in the return of Jesus, when we will perceive him, we will see him returning in glory. In uh, Romans 5, 13, uh, Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Wow. Not only does hope stored up for you in heaven produce faith and love, now filled with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you getting this? It's like uh, hoping for things is sometimes disappointing, but hoping in Christ is something that just overflows within us in hope. And this was all written by Paul, who was chained, and yet he had great hope in Christ. There are a couple of your favorite Old Testament verses here that support this. Isaiah 40, 31. The prophets wrote these things during a dark time of Israel's history. They were in captivity, and they wouldn't get out for a while. And even when they did get out, it wasn't going to be like it was before. Isaiah 40, 31. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar with wings like eagles. 
They'll run and not grow weary, walk and not be faint. And then that famous verse in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Throughout the Bible, it's like a mine, a gold mine of hope. Put your hope in God then, but be cautious of what you put your hope for something or that something will happen or circumstances to get better. When your hope rests safely in Christ, you can be assured that whatever circumstances come about, you'll find yourself in His presence, His presence within you, His resources for you to deal with whatever you may face. Put your hope in Christ. He said He would never leave you or forsake you. So we come to the end of 2020. What are your hopes for 2021? It's okay to hope for the end of COVID. Yes, we do. We hope for the end of COVID. We can hope that Republicans and Democrats can get along and can put through some helpful legislation. We can hope for an end to racial injustice. We can hope that black lives will matter in 2021. We can have those hopes. But under all of that, make sure that you put your hope in God, inside you. Hope stored up for you in heaven. Hope proven by His love for you. My prayer for you as we close is Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 17. Let's pray. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you can know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen.